0: You know, one of the uh, most glorious promises of our faith in Christ is that if you and I are in Christ Jesus, that you and I are born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God, we belong to His family. It's a beautiful thing. It's why we're gathered this morning, because we're part of the family of God, the family of believers, a family who has God as our Father. Who has Christ as our elder brother who has gone before us and a family that contains an innumerable amount of brothers and sisters. Look around this morning. These are your brothers and sisters in the faith. And it's just but a small fraction, a small part. I know some are uglier and some are prettier. Here they're all nice looking and handsome and pretty, but in other places, right? But now all over the world, right, today our brothers and sisters are joining with us. I just received a text message from a a pastor of a local church letting us know that that they were praying for sent Church this morning. And that was right before the service, and I sat back there just rejoicing. They sent a snapshot of... Uh, The image of our church name uh, uh, on the screen and some image they took off of probably our Facebook page. And they're praying for us this morning. It's it's a rather large church in our city. and, uh, And that just warmed my heart and filled me with great joy. We're part of the family of God, family of believers all over the place today. Lifting up holy hands and worshiping the Lord. And it's a family that was established through Jesus Christ through his blood, through his sacrifice. That means that the church is a Christian's first family. It's the highest order of a family for a believer. It's not your biological family. Though you ought to hold that in high esteem, it's your spiritual family, the church of Jesus Christ, that is your first family. Think about when Jesus... Uh, Was told he was preaching in a house and it was packed. And some of the disciples said there, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers and your sisters, they're looking for you. They're wondering where you are. You haven't responded to their text messages or their emails. Right. But they saw that you posted on social media that you're preaching here. So they came looking for you. What does he say? How does he define Who his family is. He goes, ah, no, yeah, that's mom. You know, she gave birth to me. I better get out there. That's my brothers and sisters. No, he said, here's how he defined his family. He says, you know who my family are? Those who do the will of God. That's my family. That's the first family of believers. And Paul's letter uh, to Timothy is replete with this language of family. And it contains that, not because the church is like a family, it's because the church is a family. Not like, but is. And it's not just a metaphor we use to try to help us define and understand the relationships. No, the reality is we are a family. We are the family of God. We're called the household of God. And the passage that we are going to take some time with uh, through today here in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is going to give us practical instruction of how a family loves And how a family cares for one another. So let's turn our attention to the word of the Lord. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to read the first 16 verses this morning. Hear the words of the living God. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. Even while she lives, command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not say. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. This is the word of the Lord. We looked at last week, at the end of chapter 4 here, a set of instructions that Paul is giving Timothy, that Timothy is to be a godly example example for the believers in the church. He is a young man, and there may be older people in the congregation. Certainly there were elders already established in the church, is what many scholars believe, and they were uh, seniors, and they were older men in the faith, and some of them were kind of teaching some wonky things. And here is Timothy who is set in this church as Paul's apostolic delegate. And now he's got to go in and take care of business. And he's got to bring some order and bring some structure to the church of Jesus Christ and correct some of these people. So how was Timothy, this young man in the faith, to go about commanding and teaching all of the things that Paul was writing to him? How was he then to address those who were maybe causing trouble in the church And they were challenging his leadership because of maybe his youthfulness or his timidity. Or maybe they were jealous and all the things that we talked about last week. So the instruction comes to him from Paul in this letter in verse 1. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Do not rebuke. Now wait a minute. Doesn't he have to rebuke? I mean, Paul's telling him to deal with these people who are teaching different doctrines and these endless myths and genealogies and people whose faith were being shipwrecked by all of these uh, uh, silly things that were being taught and, and these false teachings that were infiltrating the church. No, he's not telling him that he isn't to admonish. He's not telling him that he shouldn't correct. He's not telling Timothy, don't say any hard things to these people. He's a leader in the church. He's been set there by Paul. He's been appointed to the task. Guess what? He's going to have to admonish. He's going to have to correct. He is going to have to say some exceedingly difficult things to maybe some hard-headed people. Some people who may not receive that message very well. He's going to have to do it. And if you've been in any leadership position, you know that you have to do that sometimes. It's not always nice People don't always do what they're told to do, right? People don't always obey the instructions from the Lord and they cause trouble in the church. And sometimes that has to be dealt with. Correction needs to be brought. Strong admonishment, even at times, needs to be given. So how is he to go about this task? Paul says, do not rebuke. Now, that word rebuke is a strong word. A rebuke is a harsh word. It's a harsh word. Criticism. It's a a word of severe disapproval that needs to be brought. So he's not to bring correction in the form of a rebuke as a harsh word, a harsh criticism. He's going to tell him here that his tone, his demeanor, his attitude, his disposition, all of these things are going to be important and need to be brought to bear if correction and admonishment needs to come. In fact, he's not to rebuke. What is he to do? Is to admonish with what? Encouragement. With encouragement, right? How how, how does he encourage? Well, encouragement has to be an appeal. That's what encouragement is. When you come along to encourage someone, you are appealing to them in regards to a, a response they need to make or an action they need to take. That word encourage is actually the word that means to come alongside someone. Much like the Holy Spirit does with us, right? He is our comforter. He comes alongside us. That's what an encourager does. Comes alongside one and urges them to make a change, to change course, maybe to to respond to their circumstances or their trials in a certain way. Or in the case of where they're teaching something that might be errant, uh, it's to bring that correction and lead them to the truth. That is what Timothy's supposed to do. Not rebuke, but encourage. But encourage. Why do that? Even in the case of those who might be teaching things and, and disrupting and causing trouble in the church. Well, he's to do that because of what we just said at the beginning here. Because he's talking to family. He's dealing with the family of God. The family of believers. See, if the goal was to rebuke, if the goal was to get rid of all of those who were causing trouble and and and, and doing goofy things in the church, no one would be left in the church. That was true then, and it's true right now because we all do goofy things. All of us, every one of us, at some point will need correction, will need to be admonished, if not by the pastor of the church or an elder, but by their brothers and sisters in the Lord. But the goal isn't to rebuke because the church is first and foremost a family. And what Paul's instructions here reveal is that Timothy is going to need to adjust how he relates to the family of believers. And he needs to do that by taking into consideration their age and their gender. Look what he says. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would what? As a father. By implication, your own father, Right. And older women, he is to treat as mothers. Let's look at that older men and older women distinction first. The point here is that Timothy, he's a young man. Probably a lot of the people in the church would have been older than him. The senior members of the church are to be afforded the respect that is due their age. And Timothy is to entreat them the same way and with the same affections as he would his own parents. His own mom and dad. So if he has to admonish and correct a senior member of the church, it is not to come by way of harsh rebuke, but by loving exhortation. Think about that for a moment. Think about maybe some, how some of you may have been rebuked by a leader of the church. I've experienced that. All of us maybe have walked through a time where uh, a leader of the church has harshly or severely spoken to us, and it, and it crushes our spirit. It doesn't make you want to repent. It just wants to make you bolt. Anyone been there? Yeah, a lot of us, a lot of us, right? But here, look at this. Uh, He's to treat them as a father and older women as a mother. Again, because he's a younger man, at some point he'd have to admonish someone that's older than him. So how's he to do that? Paul's saying, hey, here's how you do it. You come by it by way of exhortation. Think about how you would bring correction to your own dad. How would you admonish your own mother? You wouldn't rebuke him. I hope not. That would be disrespectful. No, we would do that with, with respect. Maybe a little fear. <laughs> Certainly with humility. I can't even imagine, you know, speaking a harsh word of correction to my father. Or, or, or dealing with him in a severe way, even if he may be wrong in an area. No, it, w- it would be done with love and humility and respect. It would come across as encouragement. Right? That's how we correct an older person. Doing so in a way that's like I'm talking to my father or talking to my mother. The sad thing in our modern culture is that young people don't respect older people. It is disturbing to see that not only in our world, but it's a reality that exists amongst the younger generations, even in the church of Jesus Christ today. We don't have the same level of respect for those uh, who are aged and learned and have many years of experience in life before us. I mean, I was brought up to refer to older people by Mr. and Mrs. and their last name. But it's very common today to hear little kids talking to grown-up adults and older people by their first name. Because we, we haven't taught our children to respect the elderly the same way. They, they see older people like their peers, so they treat them like they're treating little kids. Or sadly, how many kids maybe even talk to their parents and deal with their parents today. But that's not the way we're supposed to treat one another. Okay, Not by the way the culture does, but by what God's word says. And the way the elderly are treated in our culture with disrespect, disdain, and overall disregard is indicative of the rottenness that exists in the moral fabric of our society. I think about how I observe on social media young men who presume to rebuke older men in the faith, men who have experience, men who lead churches or ministries and have written theological works and because they may disagree on some secondary point, they feel free to slander them, disrespect them, speak evil of them, attribute, you know, evil intentions to them. And I sit there and think about, my goodness, these older men in the faith have forgotten far more than these young ones. Presume to know right now. And it's because there is a disregard, right? That's the, that's, these are the, the, the values of our world says that youth is everything, and we disregard the older people. They're to be put away. You know, they don't really have value in our culture anymore. Youth is everything, and that's not what God's Word instructs us. In fact, we're going to see quite a few things today uh, in God's Word here. We're a family, and families are going to have disagreements, aren't they? Do you have disagreements in your family? Yeah. Between husbands and wives, there may be some disagreement. Between children and their parents, there may be... Dis- you might have disagreements with your siblings, right? We all have some family drama we deal with. Sometimes a family member acts like a bonehead. Don't look around, okay? They go off in the wrong direction sometimes, and we got to kind of reel them back in. Well, how do we deal with Family. Even when we get upset with them. Even when we have strong disagreements with them. No. What prevails? Love. We're family. We don't treat family like we treat strangers. At least we shouldn't. We should treat them with love. We should treat them with respect and with, with kindness and, and speak, rebuke. Or, it needs to come by way of cor- or correction and admonishment. It needs to come by way of encouragement. Right? Because we have to understand what's the purpose here. It's family. The honoring and respect of those who are our elders is grounded in God's law. Look at this in Leviticus 19.32. You shall stand up before the gray head and honor the face of an old man, and you shall fear your God, I am the Lord. The fear of the Lord drives someone, or should drive someone, to respect the gray heads or the gray beards. (laughs) The face, look at that, the face, right? Of an old man. Those of you who are younger in this room, and by younger I'm just saying younger than me, so probably under 20 or 30. (laughs) When you think about older people, how do you think about them? Our kids, our younger teens, how do you think about older people? When you think of your parents, when you think of your grandparents, when you think of some of the seniors in our room here today, what comes to mind? Is it respect? Is it admiration? Is it affection? Or do you just think, ah, they're just going to get in my way. Oh, they always just tell me what I'm doing wrong. That attitude we have sometimes can, as we get older, can translate into great disrespect of our parents and grandparents uh, and those who are with us in part, as part of the family of believers in how we treat them, how we talk to them, how we interact and engage with them. with respect. I love how Paul demonstrated great respect for older saints. In many of the letters, he is referencing people who are older than him. But in Romans chapter 16, at the end of that letter... I love what he says here in verse 13. He writes, greet Rufus. That's a great name for your kids. Think about that as a baby name. Greet Rufus. Look at this. Chosen in the Lord. Praise God for that. And like this, also his mom. Look what he says. Who has been a mother to me as well. Paul had great affection for Rufus's mom. He says, she's like my own mom. Can you imagine how he treated her? with respect with kindness right with affection this is how we ought to treat the older saints and this is the biblical culture we want in our church right that's what we want here where the older saints are honored and respected by the younger saints this is good this is godly this is this is right and if an older saint is to be admonished or corrected or something about their conduct needs to be addressed, or maybe they are listening or practicing or teaching something wonky, right? There's something that might be an error. We're to approach them and deal with them with an attitude of respect. The same kind of respect we owe to our own parents or grandparents. Then he looks at another age group here. These would be his peers in terms of his generational Age group, right? Younger men are to be treated as brothers. Younger women ought to be treated as sisters in all purity. So if he's to admonish or exhort a young man, he's to do that, treating them as if they were the, his own flesh and blood brothers. With, with equality as their peers, with encouragement and the same thing, if he is to bring a word of admonishment or correction to the younger women there in the church, he's to treat them as if they were his own flesh and blood sisters, encouraging them and admonishing them, but exhibiting self-control and all purity. Right, Younger man, you would treat him as a brother, but brother to brother, we could say some stronger things to one another. But a leader in the church, a man, addressing a younger woman would need to be show restraint in how that exhortation and that encouragement or correction comes about. And certainly with all purity, which is translated in some of your Bibles as chastity. Super important. Those of you who have had the privilege of being admonished by me at some point, or maybe some correction brought, know that I have always endeavored to do it in a way that comes across As encouragement. Because correction should never be about beating someone down. Correction should never be about, you know, exerting your rightness over their wrongness. Correction shouldn't be anything but bringing someone to a place of repentance. To a change that you desire. Pointing them yet again to their hope in Christ and his gospel. Look how Paul instructs Timothy in his second letter. Again, he's got to correct these people who are teaching false things. In fact, Paul calls them his opponents in 2 Timothy. Why? Because they're teaching something contrary. Maybe they are opposing his leadership. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, you can read this later. He's to correct his opponent with gentleness. He isn't to go in there with guns blazing and rip them apart. But with gentleness, why? In the hopes that God would grant them repentance so that they would come to the knowledge of the truth and come to their senses. That's admonishment, that's encouragement, that's correction. We should all do that. Treating with one another with a kind of respect. Discriminating by, by age and gender and treating one another this way. Fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Because we are family. We're family. Brothers and sisters in Christ are your eternal siblings. We forget that sometimes, but we shouldn't. We shouldn't forget that. Because that's who we are in relation to one another. I look across this room. We're going to spend eternity together. That might terrify some of you. should fill you with joy, though. But this is the eternal relationship. This is our forever family. For better or worse. That's why I said spiritual family trumps flesh and blood family. We need to treat another another that way. We need to respect one another because of that reality. Because these relationships have been forged by the grace of God. These relationships have been purchased by the blood of Christ Jesus. And what a glorious church we would be if we all sought to treat one another with this kind of honoring and respect because we're the household of God. Romans 12.10, Paul writes, love one another with brotherly affection, with brotherly love. That's the, I hope you love your siblings. I hope you do. I hope you treat them with respect even though you might have family squabbles and fights. That love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. What a cool church that would be, huh? Who wouldn't want to be part of something like that? Where we outdo one another in showing honor and deference to one another, treating the older saints as if they were our parents, and the younger saints as, as, as if they were older or younger brothers than us. That's the family of God. Sadly, there are a lot of churches that haven't received that memo, or they haven't read it yet, right? Probably went to their spam folder. A lot of churches that would not be characterized by warmth and love, um, affection, kindness. You know, they're filled with drama and bickering and gossip and backbiting. And, you know, the pastor or leaders or elders might be bullies and they rule by fear and intimidation, right? There's always some quarrel in the church. That's not the kind of family anyone wants want to be part of. By God's grace, that's not what we have here. You know, there is warmth, there is affection, there is love, there is kindness. But guess what? We have to fight for that, to preserve that, to maintain that, maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bonds of peace as Scripture uh, enjoins us to do, right? We're to defend one another, love one another, serve one another, care for one another, esteem one another more highly than ourselves. All of those one another's would contribute to making this the kind of family of believers that we would all want to be part of. We have to love like family because we are. Because we are. It was Christ's new commandment to his disciples. Last words before he went to the cross. A new commandment I leave you. Love one another. Love one another. How do you want to be loved by your brother in the Lord? Then love each other that way. He said, love one another. As, as I've loved you, that's, that's the kind of love you need to demonstrate towards one another. Peter, also writing in 1 Peter three eight. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, and again, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. That should be all of our disposition and attitude. So when it comes then to saying hard things to one another. We're doing it with the the right spirit. We're thinking about them. And we're going to encourage them to repentance. And we're going to encourage them to get right with the Lord. And to point them to the gospel. And to point them back to Christ. And you've won your brother or your sister. So I implore us here before we move on to this next section. That each one of us here behave towards our senior members and elders of our congregation with respect and honor, with gentleness of speech and proper deference. Okay? Parents, teach your kids to respect older people, especially the older saints of our congregation. And to those who are younger, and you look around and there's a lot of people maybe in your age range here you're to teach, uh, treat them with love and equality. And if hard things need to be say, said, say them in love. Speak the truth, but in love. And seek to encourage, seek to build up anytime you bring correction. Urge them in such a way that you win them back to the Lord and to relationship with you, if that has gone uh, amiss. Amen? Well, let's talk about what it means to care like a family. Because now Paul's going to address... Uh, a particular group, a particular segment of believers that make up part of the family of God. They're at the church in Ephesus, and that group uh, are widows. And these, Paul is going to instruct us here. The church has a responsibility of which Paul is concerned that they not only meet that obligation to this particular group, but that that obligation is being properly met and not overapplied or misused he writes in verse 3 honor widows who are truly widows it is amazing as i was going through scripture this week and studying this passage how much god's word has to say concerning widows like i knew it but i was blown away as i went back going you know passage by passage through the law through through the psalms through the new testament how much god's word has to say about widows And Scripture reflects how much widows should be honored in ways that most cultures, and certainly our modern culture, does not do. Now, what's a widow? Well, Scripture tells us, and we know what it is. It's a married woman whose husband has died. She is a widow. And that is a big deal in any generation, at any time in human history. But you have to think about uh, how... Important how big a deal of that would have been in these ancient biblical times. For a woman to lose her spouse didn't mean she just lost her husband. There was so much more attached to her being united in marriage to her husband. Because her identity was defined in relation to her husband. Any social standing or significance she has was in relation to her husband. For her husband to die could mean the loss of all of those things. For her husband to die would mean she'd no longer be under the protection and care that her husband provided for her. To be a widow meant that her very survival would be threatened. Now, we don't think about that nowadays. We're like, oh, the the state will take care of them. There's welfare. There's Social Security. There's this and that. Well, none of that existed in that time. They would starve. Think of the story of Naomi and Ruth in the book of Ruth. Naomi was widowed, her husband died, and then her two sons who were married, they die. So Naomi has no husband and no sons. I mean, she's completely destitute. And Ruth loses her husband. And Naomi's her mother-in-law, and they're like wandering around, like, what are we going to do? So Naomi says, why don't you go back to your home? At least, you know, you'll be taken care of then. right? These were women who would be considered destitute, having no one to care for them. Well, what we see in the Old Testament was that the care of widows was of supreme importance to God and to his people. Justice for widows and care of widows was demanded by God. And that is grounded in the fifth commandment. You all know the fifth commandment, don't you? Honor your father and your mother. Parents, make sure your kids memorize that. (laughs) That's a good one. But it's not just a suggestion. It's a command of the Lord. It's grounded in the character and nature of God, how we honor Him. It says, honor your father and your uh, your mother. Now, honor, we just think of honor as just giving recognition and respect, but honor, in God's Word, goes beyond that because it would include financial support. It would include any type of material care and support that children needed to provide to care for their parents as well. Psalm 68 describes God as a protector of widows. He is said to uphold the widow in Psalm 146 and execute justice for the widow in Deuteronomy 10. Exodus chapter 22, 22 through 24. Here's what's written in the law of God. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. Look. And my wrath will burn. And I will kill you with the sword. And your wives shall become widows. And your children fatherless. That's terrifying isn't it? There's severe punishment. There's severe punishment. Outlining God's law for the magistrate. Who treated a widow with injustice. Who didn't care for her. In God's word. Every three years, farmers were commanded to store a tithe of their produce for the care of widows and the fatherless. God cares about the widows. God's people understood their duty to care and provide for widows. That's just a sampling of what God's word says about the care of widows. So if God looks after widows that way and he cares and has compassion towards widow, how much more do his people need to have that as well? Possess the same compassion, care, and concern for widows who would be marginalized. In the New Testament, we have even more. Because we find our Lord Jesus himself demonstrating his compassionate heart towards widows. Luke chapter seven chronicles the story of him raising from the dead the son of the widow of Nain it, It's very clear from that passage it says she, that, that, that that this was her only son. What did that mean for her as a widow? She had no one to take care of her now. she, she could starve, she would die, she would be put out, she would be looked at as as, as less than and an outcast in the compassionate heart of Jesus and raising her son. From the dead demonstrates his heart for the widow. He praises the generosity of the poor widow who contributes her two mites to the to the temple treasury. And he praises her in contrast to the Pharisees who make a big show of their giving, but it's not sacrificial giving with, with, with no hope or dependence on the Lord. But this widow, she's contributing the very last in the very little that she has in sacrificial giving. He rails against the Pharisees saying that they devour widows' houses while all the while acting outwardly pious and religious, showing the evil of their heart that they would do this kind of injustice to the widow. He chastises those who under uh, false religious pretenses would shirk their responsibility to care for their aging parents. And Mark chapter 7, read that, that part where where he says the, to the Pharisees hey you, you tell those who, who who want to the 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 resources the the money the finances the support that they would normally have set aside to take care of their parents and for whatever reason they don't want to do that they'll say well we're going to devote this to the lord when we die we're going to devote all of our stuff it's korban it was it was a, a practice in that time devoted to the lord so the parents get nothing And Jesus rebukes them for that kind of wickedness. Why? Because their first responsibility was to care for their parents. It's the fifth commandment. But he truly demonstrates his heart for widows when you consider the care of his very mother as he was hanging on that cross. Suffering, paying the penalty for our sins, he turns to his beloved disciple and he commends the care of his widowed mother to his care. How beautiful is that? That's the heart of our Lord. We see that carry on in the early church. We looked at this just a few weeks ago. The early church valued this divine charge to care for widows. So what do they do? They appoint seven godly and gifted men to to be assigned and appointed over the distribution of the resources to the widows so that no one group, In this case, the Hellenistic Jews, the Hellenistic Greeks, would would not be marginalized. Those who were feeling like they were being left out in the daily distribution, he said, you know what, we're going to take care of this. All true widows need to be looked after. There was compassion. There was a heart for them. James writes in his letter that religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That's just a brief theology of widowhood, if we could call it that. God's word says a lot about that. Before we dive into the practical things that Paul is instructing Timothy here concerning the care of widows in the church, we need to have that heart, brothers and sisters. It's a heart check for us. And you might be considering this maybe in your own family. Do you have family members that are widowed? That maybe you should be looking after. Maybe it's not your own mother. Maybe it's not your own grandmother. might be an aunt or a cousin. But they have no one. God's word has a lot to say about this. Now, let's look at how widows were qualified for assistance. We know it was a super important thing to the Lord and to his church. But it's interesting here now that Paul gives instructions uh, for Timothy to qualify those who would actually receive financial support material care from the church because there is a danger of actually over applying the kind of support and care that the church was giving right and there's about there's two parts to this instruction and most bible scholars see this in two sections so i'm going to treat it this way i think it's i think it's most likely the correct way to see these two sections. The first part has to do with the actual support given to widows. And the second to the widow's service to the church. Now, widows who were to be supported by the church need to be qualified for that support. Now, you'd think the only qualification for support was that they were widows. They, they lost their husband. All right, what, what other qualifications are necessary to be defined as a widow? Well, that's the technical Definition, but the church has to distinguish between those who actually have a genuine need and those who do not. So look what Paul writes. Honor, or what did he say? Honor widows, show them proper recognition, but remember that goes beyond respect to material care and financial support. Honor widows who are what? Truly widows. Well, how is one truly a widow? Well, it's not just that her husband has died. But this really goes to the heart of the question. That, that is at the root here in this passage. Who is responsible for the financial and material care of widows? Is it the exclusive domain of the church? If so, then how, how, do, how, how do they do that? Or is there something else? Or do all qualify automatically? Well, let's define first those who are truly widows. And this is what Paul does here. Okay? Three times in this passage, he's going to reference those who are truly widows. Verse 6. She who is truly a widow left all alone has her hope in God, on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. Paul mentions here two qualifications for widows who, who are to be financially supported by the church. The first is that she is left all alone. She's destitute. She has no family to take care of her. Now customarily in this Greco Roman world and culture of that time, uh, the dowry, right, that that was given to the bride, paid by her bride's father, would accompany her into marriage. And upon her husband's death, either her son or her father, once again, could now uh, take care of her with that dowry. Okay? It would be a means, a legal provision for uh, a widow's financial security. Okay? So it was a big deal to be married, and a dowry to be paid, and and if something were to happen to her husband, she could be looked after, especially if she had children, right? It was their legal obligation, and it was their moral obligation also to do that. So the important point here is that the church's financial support should be limited to widows who are genuinely in need. They have no one. They are destitute. They have no family. There's no familial assistance, and she is unable to support herself. The church should financially support that widow. She's truly a widow. And here's the second qualification. It's a spiritual one. This widow has set her hope on God. And with supplications, and she continues in prayers, she is dependent on God. This is a godly woman, a godly widow. Her hope is in God to take care of her, to look after her. One thing I can say of the widows that the Lord has, has placed in our church family is that these are godly women who are seeking the Lord and they depend on the Lord. And they're always trusting in God for their provision. That is a godly woman. That is someone who is destitute and who depends on God. She should be financially supported by the church. It's the church's responsibility to do that, to care for them. So he writes there in verse 7, command these things so that they may be without reproach. Command the church of Jesus Christ. It's not just Timothy's responsibility. Don't hear that and just go, that's just a pastor's job. No, he's to command the church to do this. There may be some formal way the church takes care of widows, a formal program that the church has to take care of widows, but the command was to the entire body of believers so that they would be above Reproach, I praise God, you know, even from our, our, our very beginnings here, the Lord has placed widows in our church family that we have had the absolute joy to take care of in a variety of ways. And it's been a joy to do that. It's not been a burden to our church, and, and it's never been abused in our church. We've we've looked out for that uh, since since our very beginning, and it's happened in practical ways that our church has taken care of widows. It's extended from paying some bills or medical expenses or buying them groceries or giving them money for gas. I mean, there's been financial support in a variety of ways. There's been practical ways. We've had men go do landscaping and lawn care or fix something uh, in their home or take care of something that was broken in their, uh, in their vehicle It's meant maybe driving some of them to doctor's appointments and eye doctor's appointments and dental appointments, okay? We've taken care of them in practical ways by having them spend holidays with someone else in the church family if they don't have any other family to go to. Because we're a family, we take care of widows that way. But it's all of our responsibility to do this. So a widow who's destitute, a widow who is godly and dependent on God is a widow That the church has a responsibility to look after and to care for by command of the Lord. But because they're family, we would do that. And we have done that. The thing here, though, is that Paul mentions two types of widows now who won't qualify. These would not be considered truly widows as it concerns to whether or not they would be supported and cared for by the church. So here's the two widows. The first... Paul calls the self indulgent widow. She is self indulgent. This is a widow who lives for her own pleasure. The implication is carnal and immoral pleasures. Now, this might be a woman who has her own, a widow who has her own um, means to financially support herself, and she's using it to maybe live immorally, or it could also mean that. She doesn't have financial support, and rather than living in a godly and dignified way and depending on God and setting her hope on God and devoting herself to prayer and service to the church, she actually looks for alternative means of financial support. And a big deal in that time would have been widows who turned to prostitution for their sustenance, okay? That's the implication in this passage. And Paul writes that she is dead even while she lives, and that sounds... Kind of cryptic, but it can mean a variety of things. But ultimately, I think it means this is a woman then who is spiritually dead. If she's pursuing carnal pleasures and moral pleasures, she's looking outside of the church for financial support. And now she's like, Woo-hoo! I'm free from marriage. I'm going to live it up. Well, that's not someone the church takes care of, right? She has separated herself from the life of God, separated from the church of Jesus Christ. She has lacked her spiritual and spiritual purpose, um, so she doesn't qualify for the church's help. So it's interesting here that we see that the church can certainly discriminate in how its resources are used. It is not a one-size-fits-all approach. There's a lot of people who think, well, the church is supposed to take care of everyone who has some kind of need. No, we're not. We can actually use wisdom, spiritual discernment, and more importantly, God's word, to discriminate. To discern who has genuine needs from those who do not have genuine needs, right? Um, so we can discriminate whether or not we're going to extend care just to believers who are in genuine need only, or will that extend even to unbelievers? Our church has a general benevolence policy. Uh, certainly, you know, things are taken on a care by uh, uh, on a case-by-case basis, rather, but generally we take care of our f- church family first. That takes priority with the resources that we have. They are limited, um, so we're going to take care of family that has needs. So if there are genuine needs in our house They'll take care of. Sometimes we can take care of them out of our general budget. Sometimes you just take care of one another. I love hearing that from time to time in our church. There was a need that was presented. I don't even hear about it. That's awesome. That's the way it should be. Family takes care of family. That's a beautiful thing. The second type of widow that would not qualify for the financial support of the church, I'm going to call the family-supported widow. This is the widow who has children or grandchildren who've assumed... Uh, the responsibility that's rightfully theirs of caring for their widowed mother or grandmother. Now, Paul's going to give um, commands here and instructions uh, to the family members of, of widowed uh, mothers and grandparents. The first is going to be a positive command and instruction. The second one is going to be expressed in a very negative way. But Let's look at the positive one first. He writes in verse 4, "...but if a widow has children or grandchildren..." Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. This is nothing more than just living out the fifth commandment, isn't it? They're doing what they're supposed to do. Christians should take care of their parents. Christian children should take care of their parents. Now, take take this into consideration because this is this is the reversal, right, generational reversal every one of us will experience. We are little, we are young, we're infants, we're children. Who takes care of us? Mom and dad, generally. Our parents take care of us. They change our diapers. They feed us. They protect us. They provide for us in every way possible. And that doesn't just extend into adolescence, right? To teen years and beyond. Like, I have parents who... Still want to take care of me? I praise God for that as if I was still young. and Glory to God for that. I love them so much. But what happens is our parents get older. Get more feeble and weak. Maybe there's an infirmity that takes hold of their life. Or, or in this case, maybe they're widowed. Whose responsibility is it to care for them? First and foremost. But It's not the church. It's us, right? It's our obligation. It's our responsibility. By command, but it's a moral obligation as well. Every one of us who has living parents, this responsibility falls on us. We should not take that lightly. And I know people have different relationships with their parents. I'm fully aware not everything is hunky-dory sometimes in those relationships. still doesn't absolve us of that responsibility. Or really wrestling with how we're supposed to live this out and do this. We're supposed to show godliness to our own household. That's where it's demonstrated. There's a lot of people who love to show godliness elsewhere, but they don't do that to their own family members. That's a shame. That's a shame. And he says we'll be repaying our parents for all of their support and care they provided us when we're young. I've heard some people say, oh, I got this for my mom or my dad. Or My, my mom's a pain in the butt. I've, you know, I've, oh, she's always. Seriously. That's selfish. That's immature. It's being disobedient to the Lord. I'm not going to mince words in that. Is it hard? Will it require sacrifice? You betcha. But guess what your parents had to endure? When you were little, when you're a little snot-nosed child, (laughs) soiling yourself everywhere, making a mess, getting into trouble, who's there for you? Who supported you? Who took care of you? Who looked out for you? And we just get to repay in some small way when they get older and can't take care of themselves. This is a big deal. It's a big deal. Because look at the negative side to the instruction he gives here. And it's really... It's shocking when you sit here and contemplate these words enshrined in Scripture for us. Verse 8. If anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith It's worse than an unbeliever. That's shocking. It's a scathing condemnation for those who would avoid this responsibility. Because even unbelievers were expected to take care of their parents. In the Greco-Roman world, there was provisions for the care of widows. Pagans took care of their parents, right? The very light of nature says, that's the right thing to do. You take care of your parents. They took care of you. Duh. But there's a lot of people who act like it's some shocking revelation. But but it's not. Because for a professing Christian to not care for their widowed family members, especially their their mother, their grandfather, or their, their father... They're far worse than being an unbeliever. He says, that's a denial of the faith that you're claiming to profess. You really don't believe what you're, what you're saying here. And, and Paul now bookends this passage in verse 16. This is still part of what we're looking at on, at the first part here. Uh, repeats this command for family responsibility. If a believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. It's her responsibility. I'll never forget years ago, the Lord had placed a widow uh, in our church to care for, and she had a lot of needs, and she, she was very sickly, but she lived by herself, had a house, a lot of bills, and it, you know there were, there were many challenging aspects um, to taking care of her, but we loved her dearly, and we did it joyfully. But I'll never forget an infuriating conversation with her daughter. Now, her daughter lived in another state. Okay, and her daughter didn't want anything really to do with her mom. There was all sorts of drama when she was young, and you know, so there was a rift in that relationship. And I'm sitting here trying to explain to her hey, look, this is going on with your mom. We need your help. Your mom needs you, your mom needs your help. And she had every excuse in the book. Why she couldn't do it. Why she couldn't financially support her mom. Why she couldn't come down to spend some time with her. Why her mom couldn't move, relocate and move to be with her so she should take care of her. Her general attitude was, "Mm, can't do it. Somebody else is going to have to take care of her. She denied the faith. That's what she did. And I wrote her off as being worse than an unbeliever her profession of faith meant absolutely zero because she could not even show godliness to her own household, to her own family members. We can't do that. I mean, Paul deploys here four arguments for a believer's responsibility to care for their widow mother. It says in verse four, pleases the Lord. This is pleasing in the sight of God. If we want to live pleasing to the Lord. Well, here's a way we do that. We show godliness to our own household. It's a way of repaying our parents. We're not denying the faith. And in verse 16, he's saying, hey, so that the church isn't burdened, so they can actually use their resources to care for those who have genuine needs. So it's important. A challenge for us, brothers and sisters, in our modern world, right? Where you know, some of our parents may have been wise with investments and retirement and maybe there were death benefits that paid out on a life insurance policy when, you know, your father, the, the husband passed away. Um, you know, maybe there were social security benefits uh, and, and all sorts of things, you know. We, we look to those things and go, well, they're financially cared for. I really don't have to do anything. Nope. Now you have to wrestle with, okay, there isn't a financial need to to take care of my mother or grandmother. But what else do they need? Because scripture enjoins us to like a hands-on loving care of, of our family members. What does that look like now? Maybe they need emotional support, relational support. There could be other, other areas where you are to care for them. And it is your responsibility first and foremost. So we need to go beyond those other things that maybe they have already provided for. Um, and extend the kind of support and care that they need. Sadly, in our world today, it's like, oh, my parents get old. I'm going to shove them in a nursing home or assisted living facility. I'm not, please don't misunderstand me. That, that might be necessary. But if your motivation is selfish because you don't want to be bothered, um, boy, I really want you to wrestle with that and feel conviction from the Lord. Not from me, from the Lord on that aspect. It is our sacred obligation to care um, for the widows, especially if they're from your own household. Now, there's a little wider net here, which we don't really have time to maybe explore, but churches need to consider these things, especially in our world. Not only are there widows, there are widowers, right? There are uh, um, husbands who've lost their wives. And we don't tend to think of men losing their spouse in the same way. Generally, they... You know they're the ones who manage the resources and finances, and they're probably going to be okay. Not all are, uh, so there may be financial support that needs to be extended to them if they don't have fi- family members. Um, that's never been the case here, but it may be in the future. But we need to consider that. But certainly, if you have uh, a, a father or or grandfather who's a widower, then that's your responsibility to look after them. You know, we have um, women. Uh, and children who've been abandoned and neglected, you know, by their own husbands and uh, maybe destitute and don't have family to care for them and financially support them. So the church needs to consider them as well and single moms and divorcees that have all sorts of challenges, you know, uh, in their lives. So, I mean, a, a church today has to wrestle with how do we care for those who have these kind of genuine needs and, and really have no one else. But they're demonstrating fidelity to the Lord and godliness. And they are genuinely destitute. And it's our obligation to care for them as well. Lastly, we'll look at this last portion here in verses 9 to 15. we We're going to go through this really quick here. But these, you can read them as further qualifications and disqualifications. But it seems clear that Paul is introducing something different here by the command he gives in verse 9. He tells them to honor widows who are truly widows. And then he, here he says, let a widow be enrolled. And I think there's a clear distinction now that Paul is moving on to address something different concerning widows. And it's not their support, but rather their service to the church. Okay? This is not about enrolling them on a list for financial assistance. He's already addressed who really needs to get taken care of here. Uh, but rather, this is a registry of widows that were able or capable of offering service or ministry to the church. Okay? And the conditions and qualifications for this, this enrollment, this registry, bears a significant difference from the qualifications for financial support. Let me give you the three qualifications for being put on this list for service. Okay? Uh, again, these are not referenced in the previous qualification so this is something different first they were to be a specific age okay he didn't give that qualification earlier but here he says they need to be at least 60 years old okay my implication is these are now older women more seasoned and mature widows okay over 60 now 60 was considered a retirement age uh in, in in the culture of that time but the reality is, an older woman most likely would not remarry, so she could actually make a pledge or commitment to singleness and uh, devote then her life in service to the Lord and ministry in the church, okay uh, Secondly, they had to have a track record of faithfulness right She should be a one woman. Man, one man, woman. I forget, I'm getting confused in how it's said. I'm not talking about transgender things now, okay? Don't get, don't get thrown off by that. Right. Faithful to her own husband. She had to demonstrate that. So it's, it's a character of fidelity uh, that's expressed, that is evident, that is demonstrated in the family of believers. So this is an older woman, a godly woman. She's shown faithfulness, and she's devoted herself and known for her good works. And he lists five of those good works. Here, not an exhaustive list, but there are five examples. She's brought up children, all right? So people can see, wow, look how she's taken care of her kids. Look how she's raised them in the Lord, how she's provided for them and nurtured them, okay? That could could also translate to maybe caring for orphans in the church and younger children. Uh, She shows hospitality, right? That's what a godly woman does. She's hospitable to the saints. She washes the feet of the saints. Like, that's a menial task. It's a dirty job, but she she did that, right? These are good works. She, She cared for the afflicted. She's taking care of the sick. She just devotes herself to every good work. So her age was a qualification over 60. She had to have demonstrated fidelity in her marital relationship, and she devotes herself and is known for her good works. Now, there's a whole lot of historical evidence of how widows were engaged in ministry in the early church. They were really involved. And we don't always get a sense from it here, but this registry kind of begins to give us an indication of life in the early church. Uh, But Tertullian, an early church father writing in the third century, gives us a, a glimpse of the ministry of widows and how important their ministry was in the church. He writes this, Registered widows gave themselves to prayer, They nursed the sick, they cared for the orphans, they visited Christians in prison, they evangelized pagan women, and they taught female converts in preparation for their baptism. Right? There was a group of widows who were known to the church, enrolled in some registry that the elders of the church could look to to minister in a whole bunch of areas there. That's how significant the ministry of these kind of widows were. And these weren't just widows who were financially supported by the church, though they were that, because that financial support actually freed them now to devote themselves fully to the ministry of the church. It's a beautiful thing. Ideally, those who were served by the church are now serving the church. It's not always the case, but those who were able to do that, that was a commitment, a pledge that they would make to remain unmarried, and devote themselves fully to the Lord and the ministry of the church. It's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. Um, so that's that's in line what he's, he's writing here. And because of that, I hope it becomes clear why now there's an exclusion for younger widows, why they should not be, or, or Timothy should refuse to enroll them. Let's, even if they want to, Timothy's uh, instruction is to be, no, nope, you need to get married. And Paul gives reasons why. First, They're going to get restless, there's going to be uh, an itch that needs to be scratched, and they're going to want to remarry rather quickly, okay? Uh, And that's a natural desire, okay? He's not calling it sinful there, but it could lead to that, So, so get married. But what Paul didn't want them to do was to make a pledge to the church that they'd remain single and then end up having to break that pledge because... Now they want to get married again, okay? And secondly, if they were fully supported by the church, uh, that would afford them a whole lot of time to get into trouble, okay? A lot of troubles and sins, right? Look what he writes there, that they could become idlers and gossips and busybodies, right? They're not minding their own business. They're not being industrious. They're not devoting themselves to prayer and good works. They're going from house to house, spreading gossip, Okay? and they 're idle with their life and time, so paul 's advice is get married, manage your have children right have lots of kids, manage your household, and above all else, be a godly woman right that 's what younger widows should devote themselves to, but older widows who met these qualifications, they should be enrolled, their service is needed in the church, and it is significant you know and and scripture honors widows uh, and, and 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 I love how there's a pathway here that's shown how churches can give in opportunities to widows to have meaningful, significant ministry and, and usefulness, you know. Because I know it's one of the things that's been expressed to me in the past by those who who are in that, that stage of life where they're in widowhood. They, they've, they've lost some meaning. They've lost some identity, and they don't feel useful. Like, what do I do now? Well, there's a lot you can do. There's significant good work and ministry that can be done, and God can use you greatly for His glory and the good of His church. Now, John Stott, in his commentary on 1 Timothy, points out two lasting principles of social responsibility, uh, considering these apostolic instructions, and they're, they're necessary for the church. I've already said one, and it's the principle of discrimination. Okay? The church is not obligated to a general handout. We're not. We're not. I've, I've been freed of that for a long time. Um, so it's easy to say no if, if we need to say no, okay, because we, there's no obligation to it. We need to assess general needs, and first and foremost, we need to take care of our own household. And I, and, and I'm, I don't make any apologies for that. Those who give to Sent Church and, and are faithful in their giving in Sent Church, we are going to be good stewards of that and know that, hey, we want to take care of any needs that may arise here. If someone comes from the outside, well, that gets weighed against all that takes place there and if there is a genuine need. Sadly, most of the requests that come from people that are not part of a church family in our day and age are people out scamming nonprofits and churches. Because you don't really know them. You don't really know what they're telling you is the truth. Sometimes you have no way of investigating those things. But family here, it's known. We, we, we can make that determination uh, a lot easier. That's not to say that we haven't helped people on the outside. We have certainly done that, uh, but we take care of home, the fr- home front here. Uh, the church's welfare provisions are to be limited, he writes, to those in genuine need, okay? Because, as Scripture tells us, the person's own family is to be the first line of support. That's, that's where it begins, right? Um, if they don't have it, then that's different. We take care of that, right? but their own family here, because um, we don't have a responsibility to encourage irresponsibility in others. And sometimes when the church rushes to meet needs that other family members have just refused to do that, we are encouraging further disobedience and irresponsible behavior. So um, I have no problems making phone calls to family members and addressing... um, Relatives that should be helping and are not. The second principle he writes here is the principle of of dignity. Uh, Widows, single moms, divorced moms, uh, and women should have the opportunity to receive according to their need. And also serve according to their ability. Those who receive benevolence from the church should not be made to feel less than. They shouldn't be demeaned in any way. Rather, they should have a sense of dignity when they receive help from the church of Jesus Christ, because family is taking care of family, and we need to seek to preserve that as well. Now, Timothy, as a leader here, was to deliver his admonishments and exhortations with proper deference to gender and age, setting an example for how a family loves, and it's an example for how you and I are to relate to one another in this beautiful family of believers loving one another, and treating one another as fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters because we're the family of God. And in following the instructions for qualifying widows who were to receive financial support and commanding Christian families to assume their responsibilities, Timothy set an example for the church and how they ought to care for one another. The same care you and I should be employing not only in our own households, but also in the household of God. And my prayer is that the practicality of these instructions given to us in God's Word would cause us to be stirred up to love uh, for one another and to good deeds. That we would excel in how we can intentionally care for widows and others in genuine needs. I've been wrestling with that a lot this week and thinking through how we can better take care of those with genuine needs. And my prayer is that the gospel of Christ would provoke us to a keen awareness of the most vulnerable and needy among us, members of the family of God who need our love and support, that we all would see the church not just a gathering uh, of individual people, but as what we truly are, the family of God, the church of our Lord Jesus Christ.